Okay, police power. The police power. Definition and scope. Professor Frond describes the police power as the power of promoting the public welfare by restraining and regulating the use of liberty and property. As thus defined, the pow police power easily outpaces the other two inherent powers as instruments of the state in interfering with private rights. The power of eminent domain affects not all of the people directly, but only those whose property is needed for conversion to public use. The power of taxation, while imposed on most of the people directly, demands only part of their money as their contribution to the upkeep of government. Both these powers involve only property rights. By contrast, the police power regulates not only the property, but more importantly, the liberty of private persons and virtually all the people. It is in this sense that the police power may be regarded as infinitely more important than eminent domain and taxation characteristics. The police power is considered the most pervasive, the least, the least limitable, and the most demanding of the three powers. It may be exercised as long as the activity or the property sought to be regulated has some relevance to the public welfare. One might say if a common place is permitted that it operates from the womb to the tomb, protecting the person even before he is born, and prescribing strictures and requirements as to the disposition of his body and his estate if any when he dies. In between, practically everything he does or owns comes under the police power as when he studies, reaches adulthood, marries, has children, practices profession, acquires properties, builds a house, engages in business, enters into contracts, travels abroad, runs for public office, etc. How he dresses, where he may cross a street, when he may start to drive, what views he may validly express, all this and a myriad of other activities and properties of the member of society are within the ambit of the police power. The reach is virtually limitless. The person's acts and acquisitions are hemmed in by the police power. The justification is found in the ancient Latin maxims, salus populi est suprema lex, and Sic utere tuo ut alienum non laidas, which call for the subordination of individual benefit to the interests of the greater number. Owing to the need to protect society from the inordinate assertion of individual liberty, it has been held that the police power may not be bargained away through the medium of a contract or even a treaty. The impairment clause must yield to the police power whenever the contract deals with a subject affecting the public welfare. Such a contract suffers a congenital infirmity to wit, its susceptibility to subsequent amendment by the state, in the exercise of the police power as a postulate of the existing legal order. In the landmark case of Stone v. Mississippi, several persons had acquired for valuable consideration a franchise, which they claim allowed them to sell lottery tickets for a period of 25 years after for three years, however, all forms of gambling were prohibited by the state charged with violating this provision, prohi prohibition. They argued it did not apply to them because their franchise partook of the nature of a contract, the obligation of which could not be impaired without offense to the Constitution. The U.S. Supreme Court did not agree, holding in part as follows. All agree that the legislature cannot bargain away the police power of a state. Irrevocable grants of property and franchises may be made if they do not impair the supreme authority to make laws 
for the right government of the state, but no legislature can curtail the power of its successors to make such laws as they may deem proper in matters of police. No legislature can bargain away the public health or the public morals. The people themselves cannot do it, much less their servants. The supervision of both the subjects of governmental power is continuing in its nature and they are to be dealt with as the special exigencies of the moment may require. Government is organized with a view to their preservation and cannot divest itself of the power to provide for them. For this purpose, the largest legislative discretion is allowed, and the discretion cannot be parted with any more than the power itself. The contracts which the Constitution protects are those that relate to property rights, not governmental. It is not always easy to tell on which side of the line which separates governmental from property rights. A particular case is to be put, but in respect to lotteries, there can be no difficulty. They are not in the legal exception of the term mala inse, but as we have just seen, may properly be made mala prohibita. They are a species of gambling and wrong in their influences. They disturb the checks and balances of a well-ordered community. The society built on such a foundation would almost of necessity bring forth a population of speculators and gamblers. <clears throat> Living on the expectation of what by the casting of lots or by lot, chance or otherwise, might be awarded to them from the accumulation of others. Certainly, the right to stop them is governmental to be exercised at all times by those in power at their, at their discretion. Anyone, therefore, who accepts a lottery charter does so with the implied understanding that the people in their sovereign capacity and through their property-constituted agencies may resume it at any time when the public good shall require, and this whether it be paid or not. <clears throat> All that one can get by such a charter is suspension of certain governmental rights in his favor subject to withdrawal at will. He has in legal effect nothing more than a license to continue on the terms named for the specified time unless sooner abrogated by the sovereign power of the state. It is a permit good as against existing laws but subject to future legislative and constitutional control or withdrawal. The rule is the same even in the case of a treaty, thus in Ichong versus Hernandez, the petitioner sought to enjoin the enforcement of the Retail Trade Nationalization Law on the ground, among others, that it was inconsistent with the Treaty of Amity between the Philippines and China, the United Nations Charter, and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. The Supreme Court saw no conflict, but even supposing that the law infringes upon the said treaty, it continued, the treaty is always subject to qualification or amendment by a subsequent law, and the same may never curtail to restrict the scope of the police power of the state. The police power is dynamic, not static, and must move with the moving society is supposed to regulate. Once exercised, it is not deemed exhausted and may be exercised again and again as often as it is necessary for the protection or the promotion of the public welfare. Conditions change, circumstances vary, and to every such alteration, the police power must conform. What may be sustained as a valid exercise of the power now 
may become constitutional hearsay in the future under a different actual setting. Old notions may become outmoded even as new ideas are born, expanding or constricting the limits of the police power. For example, police measures val validly enacted 50 years ago against the wearing of less than sedate swimsuits in public beaches would be laughed out of court in these days of permissiveness when prohibitions against even nude swimming are facing constitutional challenge. Price control laws, which before were considered encroachments on the right to property, are now accepted in all civilized jurisdictions. The affluent have practically surrendered to the intrusive reach of social legislation such as those prescribing minimum wages and compulsory leaves which before they could successfully resist the basis of the impairment clause. And the pa police power continues to change even as constraints on liberty diminish and private property becomes more and more affected with public interest and therefore subject to regulation. Finally, it should be observed that the police power may sometimes use the taxing power as an implement for the attainment of a legitimate police objective. For example, in Powell versus Pennsylvania, the le legislature asserted after fact-finding investigation that the margarine industry was operating to the prejudice of the consuming public because its products, beside being processed in an unsanitary manner, were being taken, were being mistaken for butter. Instead of prohibiting margarine outright, which it could validly have done, it merely imposed an exorbitant tax thereon, making it unprofitable for the industry to continue without incurring losses. A similar measure may now be taken against massage parlors or sauna baths if they are found to be fronts for prostitution. In Lutz v. Araneta, the Supreme Court sustained <clears throat> as a legitimate exercise of the police power the imposition of a special tax on sugar producers for the purpose of creating a special fund to be used for the rehabilitation of the sugar industry. The tax levied by the challenge digit is for a regulatory purpose, namely to provide ways and means for the rehabilitation and stabilization of the sugar industry. Sugar production is one of the great industries of the country and imbued with public interest. And hence, Congress was empowered to find that the general welfare demanded that the sugar industry be stabilized. The law is thus primarily an exercise of the police power of the state and taxation was merely used to implement the state's power. A similar ruling was made in the cases of Chu versus Videogram Regulatory Board and Gaston versus Republic Planters Bank in association of sm small landowners versus Secretary of Agrarian Reform, the Supreme Court in sustaining the constitutionality of the Comprehensive Agrarian Reform Law held that like tax taxation, the power of eminent domain could be used as an implement of the police power. The expressed objective of the law was the promotion of the welfare of the farmers, which came clearly under the police power of the state. To achieve this purpose, the law provided for the expropriation of agricultural lands subject to minimum retention limits for the landowners to be distributed among the landless peasantry as the ponentia observed. To the extent that the measures under challenge merely prescribe retention 
limits for landowners, there is an exercise of the police power for the regulation of private property in accordance with the Constitution. But were to carry out such regulation, it becomes necessary to deprive such owners of whatever lands they may own in excess of the maximum area allowed. There is definitely a taking under the power of eminent domain for which payment of just compensation is imperative. Exercise of the police power. The police power is lodged primarily in the national legislature by virtue of a valid delegation of legislative power. It may also be exercised by the president and administrative boards as well as the lawmaking bodies on all municipal levels including the barangay. Municipal governments exercise this power under the General Welfare Clause, pursuant to which they are authorized to enact such ordinances and issue such regulations as may be necessary to carry out and discharge the responsibilities conferred upon it by law, and such as shall be necessary and proper to provide for the health, safety, comfort, and convenience, maintain peace and order, improve public morals, promote the prosperity and general welfare for the municipality and the inhabitants thereof, and ensure the protection of property therein. The exercise of the police power lies in the discretion of the legislative department. Given a police problem, it is entirely up to the legislature to decide whether or not, in the first place, it should act against the problem if it does well and good, but if it does not, it may not be compelled to do so by judicial process. No mandamus is available to coerce the exercise of the police power. The only remedy against legislative inaction is a resort to the bar of public opinion, a refusal of the electorate to return to the legislature, members who, in their view, have been remiss in the discharge of their duties. If the legislature does decide to act, the choice of measures or remedies provided only they conform to the requisites to be discussed presently lies also within its exclusive discretion. Once determined, the remedy chosen cannot be attacked on the ground that it is not the best of the suggested solutions or that it is unwise or impractical or inefficacious <clears throat> or even immoral. These are also political questions and therefore off-limits to the judiciary. To the problem of prostitution, for example, the accepted remedies are outright prohibition, as under our revised penal code, licensing subject to appropriate regulations such as periodic medical checkups and the establishment of a red light district. If the third remedy, say, is elected, it may not be reviewed by the courts on the challenge that it encourages rather than deters prostitution and is immoral to boot. These are questions that only the legislature can decide in the exercise of its sound discretion. The problem of cigarette smoking is another illustration, despite well-nigh conclusive researches linking cigarette smoking to lung cancer and the rising incidence of the disease in the United States, the American Congress has taken steps that can only be described as indifferent or half-hearted. Still, the courts are, are powerless to intervene and compel more decisive action. To do so would be to convert the judiciary into a super- legislature and to invest it with a power that does not belong to it. The assertionment of facts upon which the police power is to be based is likewise a legislative prerogative. In the preceding example, the question of whether cigarette smoking does cause lung cancer must be decided exclusively by the lawmaking body considering evidence pro and con 
in an appropriate fact-finding investigation, whatever it decides is conclusive on the courts. It is different, of course, if its conclusions are not supported by any semblance of proof at all, as where it declares against all medical opinion that heart disease is communicable and order the segregation of persons afflicted therewith. But where one respectable sector of the medical profession believes that inoculation will prevent cholera and another group of doctors equally prestigious does not agree, legislative preference for the first view cannot be questioned in the courts. As Cooley puts it, the assumption must be that if evidence was necessary to establish the necessity for the law, that it was before the leg legislature when the act was passed in the case of a statute purporting to have been enacted in the interest of the public health, all questions relating to the determination of matters of fact for the legislature, if there is a probable basis for sustaining the conclusion reached, its findings are not subject to judicial review. Debatable questions are for the legislature to decide. The courts do not seek to resolve the merits of conflicting theories. Thus, when in Jacobson versus Massachusetts, a person convicted under a law providing for compulsory vaccination against smallpox offered to prove that the remedy was of dubious efficacy and might even cause other diseases, rejection of the offer by the trial court was sustained by the U.S. Supreme Court. Test of the police power. It is not to be deduced from what has been said that the judiciary is completely incompetent to review the exercise of the police power. The above situations assume the validity of the police measures adopted by the legislature. If the measures chosen are intrinsically invalid, courts have the right and the obligation to declare them so. The question of the validity of legislative enactments as determined by the criterion of their conformity to the Constitution is essentially justiciable and may be validly decided by the courts of justice. As laid down in a number of cases, the tasks to determine the validity of a police measure are as follows. In the interest of the public, generally, as distinguished from those of a particular class, require the exercise of the police power, and the means employed are reasonably necessary for the accomplishment of the purpose and not unduly oppressive upon individuals. Lawful subject. The first requisite simply means that the subject of the measure is within the scope of the police power that is that the activity or property sought to be regulated affects the public welfare. If it does, the enjoyment of private rights may be subordinated to the interest of the greater number on the time-honored principle that the welfare of the people is the supreme law. In view of the growing complexity of modern society, there is hardly any human activity or private property that cannot be related directly or indirectly to the common welfare. It has already been remarked that practically everything a person does or owns has its impact heavier light on the well-being of the community to which he belongs. Activities that were before regarded as coming under the private and exclusive domain of the individual have irresistibly and inevitably been drawn into the embrace of the police power. John Donne's famous statement that no man is an island could be more than poetic philosophy, a valid legal principle derived from the police power of the state. Thus, a person may not do with his own life as he pleases. He may not, for example, expose himself to disease by refusing vaccination as he may contaminate his neighbors or addict himself to drugs as this would affect not only his health but also the safety and the morals of others 
or skew the use of clothes in public and thereby offend the sense of decency of the rest of the community, or indeed even kill himself so, since suicide might have an inducive effect on others similarly inclined, and moreover, the police power may protect not a person against himself. A woman may not indulge her taste for foreign perfume even if she had the means to do so, as its importation would reduce our foreign reserves and as well prejudice the local perfume industry, nor may she abort an unwanted child or marry another's husband for the police power protects the sanctity of life and the inviolability of marriage. One who owns a house does not have absolute power over it. He may not set it on fire and thus endanger his neighbors or use it as a den of subversives to the detriment of public order or built it high to obstruct light and air from the next slot or build it low to the impairment of aesthetic values. Billboards offensive to sight or distracting the attention of motorists may be prohibited. Selling or floor prices may be prescribed for privately owned prime commodities for the protection of the consuming public against warders, profiteers, and black marketeers. Common carriers may be required to install devices and conveniences for the safety and comfort of passengers. Human sacrifices may not be permitted in the exercise of religious freedom or libel and slander in the exercise of freedom of expression. As long as the object is the public welfare and the subject of regulation may be properly related thereto, there is compliance with the first test requiring the primacy of the welfare of the many over the interest of the few. Thus, intoxicable operators of Metro Manila versus Board of Transportation, an administrative regulation facing out taxi cabs more than six years old, was held a valid police measure to protect the riding public and promote their comfort and convenience. And in Velasco versus Villegas, an ordinance prohibiting barber shop operators from rendering massage services in a separate room was likewise sustained to prevent immorality and enable the authorities to protect to properly assess license fees. In Bautista versus Junio, the police power was also sustained in prohibiting heavy and extra heavy vehicles from using public streets on weekends and legal holidays. The object of the ban being energy conservation in the chalk case, the creation of the videogram regulatory board was sustained as a proper exercise of the police power to answer the need for regulating the video industry, particularly because of the rampant film piracy, the flagrant violation of intellectual property rights, and the proliferation of pornographic videotapes. In the landmark case of Lozano versus Martinez, the Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of BP Number no. 22, otherwise known as the Bouncing Checks Law, Unanimous decision penned by Justice Pedro Eliap declared in part as follows. Recent statistics of the central bank show that one-third of the entire money supply of the country, roughly totaling $32.3 billion, consists of peso demand deposits. The remaining two-thirds consist of currency in circulation. These demand deposits and the bank constitute the funds against which, among others, commercial papers like checks are drawn. The magnitude of the amount involved amply justifies the legitimate concern of the state in preserving the integrity of the banking system. Flooding the system with worthless checks is like pouring garbage into the bloodstream of the nation's economy. The effects of the issuance of a worthless check transcends the private interest of the parties directly involved in the transaction and touches the interest of the community at large. The mischief it creates is not only a wrong to the pay or holder, but also an injury to the public. The harmful practice or putting valueless 
commercial papers in circulation multiplied a thousandfold can very well pollute the channels of trade and commerce, injure the banking system, and eventually hurt the welfare of society and the public interest. As aptly stated, the check flasher does a great deal more than contract a debt. He shakes the pillars of business, and to my mind, it is a mistaken charity of judgment to place him the same category with the honest man who is unable to pay his debts and for whom the constitutional inhibition against imprisonment for debt, except in cases of fraud, was intended as a shield and not a sword. In some, we find the enactment of BB-22 a valid exercise of the police power and is not repugnant to the constitutional inhibition against imprisonment for debt. In Department of Education versus San Diego the petitioner issued a regulation disqualifying any person who has failed the national medical admission test three times from taking it again and in effect from enrolling in a medical school. Annulled by the lower court, it was reinstated by the Supreme Court as a valid police measure intended for the protection of the patients, said the court. While every person is entitled to aspire to be a doctor, he does not have a constitutional right to be a doctor. This is true of any other calling in which the public interest is involved. And the closer the link, the longer the bridge to one's ambition. The state has the responsibility to harness its human resources and to see to it that they are not dissipated or no less worse that not used at all. These resources must be applied in a manner that will best promote the common good while also giving the individual a sense of satisfaction. A person cannot insist on being a physician if he will be a menace to his patients if one who wants to be a lawyer may prove better as a plumber, he should be so advised. Of course, he may not be forced to be a plumber, but on the other hand, he may not force his entry into the board. By the same token, a student who has demonstrated promise as a pianist cannot be shunned to decide to take a course in nursing, however appropriate this career may be for others. Private respondent must yield to the challenge rule and give way to those better prepared. Or even those who have qualified may still not be accommodated in our already crowded medical schools, there is, also, there, there is all the more reason to bar those who have been tested and found wanting. It is not enough to simply invoke the right to quality education as a guarantee of the Constitution. One must show that he is entitled to it because of his preparation and promise. In Sangalang versus Intermediate Appellate Court, the Supreme Court sustained the act of the mayor of Makati in opening two erstwhile private roads in Bel Air Village on the basis of stipulations in the deeds of the donation covering the said streets that they would be available to the general public under certain conditions. The rationale was the demands of the common good in terms of traffic, the congestion, and public convenience. In Del Rosario versus Bengzon, the Supreme Court sustained the generic act which requires doctors to prescribe generic drug products rather than specific brand medicines, some of which may cost more than others because of the advertising cost that is added to their price, according to Justice Carolina Green New Aquino. The purpose of the Generics Act is to carry out the police of the state to promote and require the use of generic drug products that are therapeutically equivalent to their brand name counterparts for the therapeutic effect of a drug does not depend on its brand but on the active ingredients which it contains. The medicine that cures is the active ingredient of the drug, not the brand name by which it has been baptized by the manufacturer. The principal issue raised in telecommunications and broadcast authorities of the Philippines versus Commission on Elections was the validity of Section 92 of BP Bilang 881 
requiring radio and television stations to <clears throat> give free airtime to the respondent to be used as the COMELEC hour for broadcasting information regarding the candidates in the 1998 elections. It was argued that the requirement constituted a taking without true process of law and payment of just compensation besides violating the Equal Protection Clause and the provisions of their franchise. <clears throat> the challenge was rejected by the Supreme Court, which held that the law was a proper regulation by the state of the use of the airwaves. According to Justice Mendoza, radio and television broadcasting companies, which are given franchises, do not own the airwaves and frequencies through which they transmit broadcast signals and images. They are merely given a temporary privilege of using them. Since a franchise is a mere privilege, the exercise of the privilege may be reasonably be burdened with the performance by the grantee of some form of public service. But as ubiquitous as the police power may be, it is fortunate for individual liberty that there are still some area of human activity that are not within its reach. This will be so where the subject sought to be regulated has no bearing whatever upon the public welfare. The police power can unquestionably impose restrictions on what a person may wear in public, but in the privacy of his own bedroom, his attire or lock of, it is his own business. Merchants may re be required to keep books of accounts and even to use certain languages therein as their activities affect the public, but ordinary individuals may not be compelled to keep diaries or to use certain languages therein or to open them for inspection by public agencies or function Naris, as these records are not involved in the interest of the general community. The price of staple goods like rice is subject to limitation by the police power for the protection of the consuming public, but the price of a work of art, like a painting by Rembrandt or a novel by a prestigious writer, cannot be similarly limited as these are not basic necessities affecting the people as a whole. A person may not be prohibited from planting roses in his garden or from using brown drapes in his study room or from parting his hair in the middle or from preferring a particular type of music or from owning a gold watch or from exercising by dynamic tension. These are entirely private matters in which the public interest is not at all involved and over which, therefore, the police power cannot be validly asserted. The issue in Ople v. Torres was an administrative order issued by President Fidel V. Ramos establishing a national computerized identification reference system for the expressed purpose of facilitating transactions with the government, particularly those providing basic services and social security benefits. Suspicious of its real motives, the petitioner challenged it before the Supreme Court as a sinister attempt of the government to control its citizens by intruding into their right to privacy. By an 8-6 vote, the order was struck down as an invalid police measure. <clears throat> Writing for the majority, Justice Reynato S. Puno declared that the order pressures the people to surrender their privacy by giving information about themselves on the pretext that it will facilitate the delivery of basic services. Given the record-keeping powers of the computer, only the indifferent will fail to perceive the danger that AO number 308 gives the government the power to compile a devastating dossier against unsuspecting citizens' lawful means. Even if the purpose be within the scope of the police power, the law will still be annulled if the subject is sought to be regulated in violation of the second requirement 
in constitutional law, the end does not justify the means. The lawful objective, in other words, must be pursued through a lawful method. That is, both the end and the means must be legitimate. Lacking such concurrence, the police measure shall be struck down as an arbitrary intrusion into private rights. Thus, to contain the spread of leprosy in the interest of public health, the leper may be confined in a leprosarium where he will not contaminate the other members of his community. The restriction of his liberty is reasonably related to the purpose sought to be accomplished and cannot be considered unduly oppressive upon him. But if in lieu of such remedy, the legislature were to provide for his summary execution, the remedy being arbitrary would be illegal, although the purpose of the law would be achieved. In pursuance of the constitutional policy to avoid afford protection to labor, the legislature may validly require reasonable working hours or minimum wages, but if the hours prescribed are inordinately short or the daily wages excessively high, this coddling of the working class may be successfully challenged as being unduly oppressive to the employers. A law requiring the attendance of a full-time pharmacist in drugstores is valid as to the purpose and method since the presence of the pharmacist is intended to prevent the wrong dispensing of medicines to the detriment of the health of life of the customer. But if the person whose presence was required was an engineer or a lawyer, the law would be unconstitutional as there would be no reasonable relation between the means and the end. In Enoch versus Intermediate Appellate Court, an executive order prohibited the transport of carabaos or carabao meat across provincial boundaries without general government clearance for the purpose of preventing indiscriminate slaughter of these animals. While considering the validity of the purpose, the Supreme Court had the following to say about the method. <clears throat> we do not see how the prohibition of the interprovincial transport of carabaos can prevent their indiscriminate slaughter, considering that they can be killed anywhere with no less difficulty in one province than in another. Obviously, retaining the carabaos in one province will not prevent their slaughter there any more than moving them to another province will make it easier to kill them there. As for the carabif, the prohibition is made to apply it to it as otherwise. So says the executive order, it could be easily circumvented by simply killing the animal. Perhaps so, however, if the movement of the live animals for the purpose of preventing their slaughter cannot be prohibited, it should follow that there is no reason either to prohibit their transfer as not to be flippant dead meat. In the instant case, the carabos were arbitrarily confiscated by the police station commander and were returned to the petitioner only after he had filed a complaint for recovery and given a supersedious bond of 12,000 pesos, which was ordered confiscated upon his failure to produce the carabaos when ordered by the trial court. The executive order defined the prohibition, convicted the petitioner, immediately imposed punishment, which was carried out forthright. The measure struck at once and pounced upon the petitioner without giving him a chance to be heard, thus denying him the centuries-old guarantee of elementary fair play. In one American case, the challenge law prohibited the use of shoddy for the making of mattresses on the ground that the material was inimical to the health of the user. It was asserted, however, that shoddy did not have any toxic or other deleterious properties. The statute was therefore annulled for lack of reasonable connection between the purpose sought to be accomplished and the means employed to achieve it. 
a law conditioning the issuance of marriage license upon the applicant's first passing a blood test would be constitutional. The purpose is to lessen the incidence of social diseases and the means employed in pursuance thereof are reasonably relevant and not unduly oppressive. A law limiting the capacity of common carriers or of theaters while it would reduce the profits of the operators would nevertheless be valid as this would be a reasonable method for promoting the comfort, convenience, and safety of the customer. Existing law validly punishes rape with life imprisonment and even death if the offense is considered high news. There is here an equivalence between the degree of the offense and the degree of the penalty, which is reasonably expect expected to deter outrage to female chastity, honor, and security. Suppose, however, that the penalty prescribed were not death but castration of the convicted rapist, such a remedy, while certain to prevent his repetition of the crime, would nevertheless be invalid as an affront to the integrity of the person's body as guaranteed by due process. How many the legislature regulate the use of public places in the interest of community cleanliness and beauty? Obviously, these objectives could be achieved by an ordinance requiring litter to be deposited in trash receptacles and punishing non-compliance therewith. These properties, however, while valid, would be invalidly pursued if the law were to prohibit the distribution of handbills in public places on the ground that the people who received them would only scatter them in the streets. Such a law would violate the distributor's right to articulate and disseminate ideas as guaranteed under the Freedom of Expression Clause in the Constitution. In fine, the means employed for the accomplishment of the police objective must pass the test of reasonableness and specifically conform to the safeguards embodied in the Bill of Rights for the protection of private rights. Failing this, the law will be annulled for violation of the second requirement, integrity of the police power. It can be seen from the above discussion that properly exercised, the police power can be an effective instrument for the furtherance of the public welfare. There is in fact no better instrument for this purpose in a free society. Indispensably, of course, the two criteria just examined must be strictly complied with lest their disregard debase the police power into an unwarranted intrusion into individual liberty and property rights, or worse, a bludgeon for oppression. In such a case, the free society will deteriorate into a police state with absolute power over the individual. The ideal of the greatest good for the greatest number will be subordinated to the wicked scheme of perpetuating despotic authoritarianism. This corruption of the police power will lead to the decay of democracy itself.